And we're going to talk Air Canada. Air Canada has made an announcement. It was yesterday, just after we wrapped up this show uh, at noon. Air Canada said it would be cutting dozens of daily flights this summer as the airline is trying to fix what's clearly broken in terms of challenges they are facing amid soaring demand for travel. I mean, everybody wants to hop a flight after two plus years of staying still uh, and staying tight, uh, canceling flights to try and resolve the issues that we've seen in YVR at Pearson, also in Montreal. Uh, Have you seen the photos of the baggage claim areas in Pearson? Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bags just sitting there stuck. Uh, And each one of them representing a stuck traveler, which is not good business. So is this good business to say, hey, you know what? We recognize the issue that we're facing here. We're going to dial it back so we can deliver for the people who are trying to get to their destinations. Lots of people traveling for really important reasons, not just going on vacay, but needing to get to family or, or getting someplace for work. So let's dive deeper into this and we'll do it with someone who knows this industry very, very well. Uh, Duncan D. We've had uh, Duncan on before here. He's the former uh, Air Canada COO and executive VP and and an aviation expert. Duncan, good to have you on board today. Thanks for doing this. Great to be back with you, Jody. Let's make sure your seat is in the upright position and your baggage is properly stowed as we get into what we're talking about here with all, you know, we're trying to keep it light uh, when we're talking about uh, long weekend and summer travel. But at the same time, it's been anything but light for so many travelers, particularly in Canada. First, let's set up what you've seen happening here uh, with regard, not just Air Canada, but at airports. Like, What's it like uh, for travelers today as we face um, shortages in, in staffing and, and struggles with getting through uh, security and customs and what have you? What is at the root of this? Well, Jody, you know, like we talked last time, you know, this is not something that's new. And unfortunately, Canadians, Canadian travelers, have had to live with this now for, as of today, 89 days. I mean, I've been counting. It's been 89 days since Canadian travelers have seen massive lines, both at security and at customs, and they haven't dissipated. The difference now is we're in the thick of it. This is now one week into the summer peak. So you now have a situation where you've got more travelers than ever uh, since the start of the pandemic taking to the skies. And, you know, the bags that you described sitting on the floor um, in uh, Montreal and Toronto, um, you know, every traveler that has been inconvenienced um, has bags, They ha- you know, they have plans. And so it's, it's becoming, it's getting to a point where it was becoming unmanageable. And Air Canada made a very difficult decision yesterday to trim their schedule so that they would end up with a uh, schedule that they could manage better. Right. So they could deliver the service that they promise. Uh, and this has not been happening, as as you mentioned, for 89 days. I don't think I know one person who has departed on a trip. Doesn't matter where the destination might be. Everything flies through one of the major airports in this country. And, and it's just such a domino effect. But do we know... Is it the volume of flights? Is it the lack of personnel on the ground? Is it the lack of pilots? Is it what is there one thing at the root of this or is it just a a combination and a perfect storm for the airlines? Jody, that's a great question. What is causing all of this? And I think if you take a look at what the stats are, what the data is, you'll get a much clearer picture of what's happened. You've got Air Canada, which kept 97 percent of its pre-pandemic workforce in place. They promised to fly 80% of their pre-pandemic schedule. So they had a buffer built in off the top. 
The difficulty that we're facing now is when you end up in a situation, I've always described uh, air travel as being a team sport. So you've got members of your team that have completely dropped the ball. You've got um, customs where uh, it's taking travelers four times longer to clear customs than they did before the pandemic. And then you've got security where, where, you know, YVR had been advising travelers to show up three hours before their flight, not because it took three hours longer to check your bags or to, to get a boarding card. It was because it took three hours longer to get through the security lines. So when you end up with that situation, it's bad enough when it's happening over a single day. But when it's been happening for 89 days nonstop, it really makes it difficult for an airline to operate. No airline on the planet has enough spare aircraft or spare crews to be able to handle this level of disruption for as long as it's been going on in Canada. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it's a perfect storm in some ways. It's an imperfect storm in other ways because it's been going on for 89 days, which means that the government has had 89 days to try to fix this. And they've really done very little to address these issues. We're with Duncan D, former Air Canada COO and Executive VP, an aviation expert. This is not like you're just looking from the outside in. And you've got you've advised in a government capacity as well. Isn't that right? Yes, I sat on the Canada Transportation Act review panel. Uh, the Canada Transportation Act is the law that governs all transportation, all more modes of transportation in Canada. And the legislation itself calls for it to be reviewed every 10 years. The previous government appointed me as one of the panels, along with David Emerson, who's a, who, who's, who's a resident of Vancouver, so probably listening. Um, and uh, he chaired that panel, um, and I was the aviation um, uh, representative, the expert on aviation on that panel. Okay, so when I'm hearing what you're saying, so the, having that buffer, the, the 97% of, of staffing in place, 87% of service in place, and then you add all of the layers where the dominoes uh, get stuck when one ball is dropped, when customs takes four times longer. I was watching uh, our federal public health officials um, speaking about COVID-19. They were talking about monkeypox as well, but they were talking about vaccination. They were talking about a number of things. And a Rive can came up. Jean-Yves Duclos, our, our federal health minister, uh, said that ArriveCan actually makes things faster at customs. Is that is that accurate from your perspective? I, I think that's laughable because the customs officers themselves are saying they're now becoming the IT help desk for travelers arriving. And I think listeners in the Vancouver area would be much more sensitive to this. Did you know, Jody, that the ArriveCan app is only available in English, French, and Spanish? So you, you have an... English, French, and Spanish for an international, for an app that is designed for international travelers to use. So could you imagine uh, somebody from Asia who doesn't speak English, French, or Spanish as their first language having to navigate an app about their vaccine status, you know, where you've got health information that you're supposed to provide. Where you, and so no wonder people are taking four times longer to complete security. You've given them this very complicated app which english speakers french speakers and spanish speakers are having trouble and you make an international app only in three languages and i you know frankly i i wasn't even sure that spanish was uh that that prevalent a language among international travelers to canada especially in a city like vancouver that is stunning i had no idea that it wasn't in more than three languages i had to do it for my parents who uh are fluent english speakers 
uh, because it is rather complex and there are technical pieces of the puzzle and not everybody is technically savvy. So I can see that being uh, um, a, a stumbling block, if you will, for people that are trying to just travel as they have in the past. My my 84-year-old stepdad, I, all of his friends listening, listen to the show, so they'll report back to him that I'm talking about him on the radio here. But he's a very bright individual. He is very on it. He's, he is technically savvy, and even he struggles with this. And he's he often comments on, I, I'd like to go back to a time where we would just go to the airport, go through security, get to the gate, get on a plane. Now, the process has not been streamlined for for some time. And might we ever see a return to to it being as simplistic as we have in the past, Duncan? Do you see a time knowing now that we are going to have COVID-19 with us uh, for the foreseeable future when we get into the fall and winter when it is quote unquote COVID season again, will we be back to testing our way through an airport? Well, Jody, you know, the thing that worries me the most is that other countries, whether um, it's the UK, the US, uh, France, Germany, they have uh, managed to uh, live with COVID in in travel in in some ways. So they're not forcing their travelers to use an Arrive Can app. They're not forcing their travelers to potentially get random tested or to quarantine. You know, these are things that are unique to Canada. Even Australia and New Zealand have dropped many of these um, uh uh, mandates. And so Canada is one of the few ca- countries that's still persisting in doing this. So the thing that worries me is, is it going to get any better? Well, I mean, the, it's all in the government's hands. If the government persists on imposing these these uh, rules um, on Canadians and travelers to Canada, then no, it won't get any better. The only thing I can see that's bright in the horizon is that come Labor Day, the traffic just slows down. We don't right. have as many people traveling after Labor Day. So yes, the line, lines are going to disappear by then. But between now and then, I'm afraid uh, travelers to YVR and, and elsewhere are going to be seeing long lines, delays and cancellations. Although, although the yeah. Air Canada announcement should make things slightly better. And the good news for Vancouver listeners about the Air Canada announcement is not many flights were affected uh, in the Vancouver, uh, at the Vancouver airport. This announcement was mainly about cancellations in Montreal and Toronto, where the situation is much, much worse than it is at YBR. Okay, that's a, we'll leave it on that high note. I appreciate your time today, Duncan. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Jody. Happy Canada Day. And remains important for uh, those people that enter into Canada to, to identify whether uh, they, they are appropriately vaccinated. But increasingly, uh, Arrive Canada is also being used to facilitate and accelerate uh, entrance into Canada through uh, customs data entry, uh, which in many cases makes it quite fast and quite efficient to enter into Canada using that particular tool which has been developed uh, for uh, other purposes to to make our, our custom system even more efficient. Uh, okay, uh, actually CBSA has said that the Arrive Canada app tends to slow things down and I, I assume there was a public health rationale for keeping it but I will move on. We're going to lean in on the public health piece of this puzzle. I'm going to ask Phil to open up the phone lines here because Jason Tetro is going to join us and we are going to take your calls for the next 30 minutes or so and talk through uh, what uh, NACI, the National Advisory uh, Committee on Immunization, announced uh, a document released that that sort of lays out the plan for Canada. And yet again, it it is clear as mud. <laughs> It's one of those things where we really, really, really need Jason Tetro. So I'm always grateful when uh, Jason gives some time out of his very busy schedule to join us here. Thanks for doing this again, pal. 
Hey, no problem at all. <laughs> I came in on the Jean-Yves Duclos, the health minister clip there from this morning's press briefing with Teresa Tam, uh, our federal um, health officer, uh, when they're talking mm-hmm. about the recommendations and talking about travel. And as soon as I mentioned that you're coming on here, my email inbox fills up and people are like, can you ask Jason a question? So I'm going to start with a travel question here uh, that sure. Jeff sent me. We're under 70. Our third vaccination was given seven months ago. We're traveling to Spain in September, lucky dog, which requires that we be vaccinated more, no more than nine months previous to entry. Mm-hmm. Will we be able okay. to get a booster prior to travel? Good question. Well, n- yeah, I mean, at this point, because of what the NASI recommendations have said, which is essentially anyone from 12 all the way up uh, can get that fourth dose, then what happens is that you are finally in a position where you can get that dose and you can actually be within that seven or that that, that nine month EU restriction for Schengen. Um, I was just in Schiphol in Amsterdam, so like I had to do that myself. So I think that's one of the reasons why NASI has sort of said that there is that discretionary recommendation for everybody to get vaccinated because it may be more of a regulatory issue than it is actually a scientific one. Because you, if you remember earlier in the week when we talked, I was saying that the 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 vaccine is is suffering from a colander effect and may not be as effective as we initially believed. Yeah, lots of people referenced our discussion uh, and specifically that colander effect and wanting to have the best possible protection going into what will be COVID flu and cold season in the fall when we all go back indoor Mm -hmm. indoors. But there's a lot of conversation about the possibility of a summertime wave. And you and I were going back and forth in in preparation for today uh, about Mm -hmm. How And you said something that I was like, really? Is that true? You said, isn't it interesting that new variants are often discovered <laughs> leading up to a long weekend? I did. Hello. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I mean, if, if anyone who's listening after I've finished, um, go and Google essentially before the holiday or before a holiday in quotes and then put COVID. You'll actually notice that um, as we head towards holidays, COVID rates seem to go up. Sometimes they actually spike exponentially. And we've seen this in Canada numerous times. Uh, in British Columbia, just remember what it was like uh, before the May 2-4 in 2020. There was nothing. Yeah. After the May 2-4, all of a sudden, it's like everybody is having a problem. And then there was Halloween on Granville. Anyway, that's another thing. So oh, yeah. the reality is that we we have higher mobilization leading up to a holiday than we do actually at the holiday itself. And that higher mobilization, the two to three weeks beforehand, is actually going to lead to those increases. More importantly, there have been studies that have been done, including researchers like myself, to find out whether or not in the lead up to a holiday, if they're actually following with the compliance. And, and the answer is it's only about 40%. So as wow. you're heading towards a holiday, whether it be Canada Day um, or, or Christmas or whatever it is, people tend to be more lax because they're more focused on the holiday than they are on their public uh, or on their hygiene or whatever you want to call it. So this is actually something that's incredibly fascinating. So Jason Tetro is the germ guy. He's a microbiologist with a specialty in emerging pathogens like COVID-19. And that's why we like to open up the phones. And there are no dumb questions when it comes to wanting the facts <laughs> around COVID. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, a free call on your cell. I got another from Bruni here. Bruni sent me an email, said, I was mm-hmm. due to get my second booster May 25th, but got COVID a week before that. Do I wait three months, Ugh. late August, to get the booster? Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, you're going to have to. Um, what we found is that 
if you get a booster after you've had an infection, um, you're not really going to be upping your antibody levels, which is, of course, the goal for having the booster. Uh, and as for the secondary immune response, the T-cell response, it's already stimulated and will actually stay stimulated for anywhere from three to six months, depending on how your immune system is functioning. So right. waiting that three months to actually get the booster is really more of a chance to allow your immune system to deal with the infection. It'll come back down and then you can train it again. All right, let's go to the phones. Daryl and Coquitlam, you're up first. Welcome to the show. What's your question for Jason Tetro? Yes, thank you for taking my call. Jason, my question is, do you believe that the, they will be able to incorporate a booster for COVID-19 with the annual flu uh, vaccination that most people receive in the fall? I'll hang up and get your answer. Yes. So right now, we are looking at multivalent... Uh, sorry, <laughs> numerous different strains within the same vaccine. Um, we're looking at that with flu. And we actually already have that. So you get like four different strains in your flu shot. Now, the question is, can you do this with other viruses? We know you can do that with other bacteria. So, you know, you, you have your, uh, your polio with uh, your tetanus and your diphtheria, that type of thing. But the fact is, is that when you look at it from a viral perspective, you have to be a little bit more cautious. Now, we have the measles, mumps, rubella, which is great, but will we be able to have a flu COVID? Eh. I, I, to be honest with you, my favorite would be a COVID along with flu and RSV, but we're not there yet. So it's going to take some time. But in the meantime, I think when we start seeing more of the Omicron versions of the COVID vaccine coming out, you just go and get that. And then maybe, you know, a week or two weeks later, whatever it may be, then you go get your flu shot. And if we stagger them out uh, with rollouts, we should be okay. All right, Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And we are taking your calls for Jason Tetro, the germ guy, the super awesome science show podcast guy, the microbiologist with uh, a specialty in emerging pathogens like COVID-19. This is what Jason does. And we do have our phones open. And yes, they are busy. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And I understand that Gary has pulled his car over to ask his question. Gary from New West, you're up first. Welcome. Hey, Jody, thanks for taking my call. I'm 66-year-old. Uh, me and my wife, uh, we're due for our fourth booster on the middle of June. I've been trying for six weeks to get my get my appointment or whatever. Uh, they have all these wonderful stories. Well, phone you as soon as it's available or whatever. I can't get my fourth shot. I'm due. We're all mm -hmm. ready to go. We're, we're fully, we're three-shot boosted. We're, we can't get our shot. I, I just need the information of what's going on. If he can help. Yeah. So what's going to end up happening is probably over the next week, uh, the province of British Columbia is going to act upon what the new NACI regulate or guidelines have said. And so they will then decide how they are going to release these fourth dose boosters um, to, to the public. And now that it's been from the government of Canada's perspective, 12 and up, then you being 66 means that you don't have to be 70, which means that you should be able to do it. You just probably need a little bit of time because of the uh, logistics, but it won't be anything like it was back in February of 2021. <laughs> you won't be waiting yeah. for like six weeks for it. Because it's not a supply issue, right? And people have been saying, can we just no. get it already? And then public health officials here are saying, hey, we had longer duration between doses. We have more uh, durable immunity here in BC because we had longer waits between dose one, dose two, and dose three. There was a lot of stuff coming into play, but it's a real mi mixed message. And once again, people are left 
uh, confused or frustrated. And before the break, I said I was going to ask you, Jason, about that frustration piece. Somebody who says, you know what, Mm -hmm. three doses in a year, I'm good. I'm done. I'm not doing more. What do you say to those people? Look, at this point with the current lineage that we have for the vaccine, you're probably going to be okay unless you're immunocompromised, at which point you need to have as high of an antibody level as you can have. But when the Omicron one comes out, and from what we heard from the press conference this morning, it sounds like it's on its way, then I would very much recommend that you get that because then if we can all sort of have that Omicron vaccine version, then we can actually take our masks off. And as you might know, masks are coming back. Masks are back, baby. Stephen Colbert's entire audience had masks. Uh, and I it know. was because his his dad's a scientist, an immunologist, in fact. Uh, let's get back to the phone lines. Jeremy in Abbotsford, you're up next. Welcome to the show. Your question for Jason. Oh, I got a couple quick questions. I'm going to the USA, flying there in September to Colorado. And then next year in June, July, going to, um, what do you call it, Switzerland and Norway. So my question is, um, how far in advance do I need to be researching about what the rules are in those countries? And is there a website or do I just want a travel agent? Where do people go to find out, oh, Norway requires 15 shots and Sweden requires, uh, or Switzerland requires two (laughs) shots? Where do you go for this information? Great question, Jeremy. Great one. Absolutely. Um, so the EU has its own website that will allow you to understand which, uh, w- like what the regulations are. But if you're going to a non-EU country, then the Schengen, as we call it, uh, won't apply. And so you're going to have to go to each individual one. Um, unfortunately, it's just merely a matter of Googling Sweden entry vaccinations and go from there. As for the United States, uh, essentially, you just have to show that you've had the primary series. And I believe they're going to be incorporating the same as the EU where it's nine months, you have to have a booster. Uh, Mm. I don't know if that's going to be in in play or not. But uh, you're looking at getting uh, going to Colorado in September. So I would really recommend that you have at least that third dose. Um, And, uh, you know, if it has been longer than nine months, then, you know, you might want to consider getting that fourth one just to actually say that, yes, indeed, you are meeting the regulations. All right. Phones are busy. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 if you want to get in on it from your cell. Sally and Kamloops, welcome. You're up next. Hi, um, Jody and Jason. My question is, um, we are age 76 and 84. We've had our fourth dose. How should we feel if we're around unvaccinated people? Good question. Uh, yeah. Um, this is one of the reasons why we had that discussion a couple of days ago, Jody, because we know that even with the fourth dose, you are still not going to have the um, level of antibodies that could potentially protect you from uh, an infection. And so as a result of that, even if you've had the fourth dose, if you're sort of T-cell immunity is not doing so well, and usually that starts to go down at around age 70, that's why the fourth dose is recommended, then you may also have to look at using other types of protection, such as masking. Um, It's not really the best because we really shouldn't have unvaccinated people at this stage, but because we do have that freedom, then if you are going to be around other individuals, I would really recommend that you just put the mask on. It will protect you from enough of the virus so that you won't end up having to worry about problems. And so uh, it's not the greatest situation, but that's really the only one I can offer at this point. Yeah, erring on the side of caution is probably the best plan here. John in Vancouver, you're up next. What's your question for Jason? Yes, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. 
Uh, I got the first COVID shot. It was called Novavax uh, about a month yeah. ago. Seven, seven, eight days later, after the uh, taking my first shot, I got COVID. I just finished through uh, two or three weeks of mm-hmm. a pretty rough experience. My question is, can you get COVID from the shot, from the Novavax? I'm supposed to get the second no. shot in about three weeks. Yeah, no, 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 no. So here's the way it works, okay? Um, in order for you to be able to prevent an infection from happening, okay, you either have to prevent exposure, barrier protection, wear a mask, or you have to have a high enough level of antibodies that are going to pre- prevent that virus from getting into you and starting an infection. And that's great. But vaccines take anywhere from 14 to 21 days to get you to that antibody level. You were in that incubation period, if you will, or the training period. And this is something that we actually saw. Jody, do you remember those conspiracy theorists who were like, oh, it was only 12% effective? Yeah. Um, yeah. There was like a Pfizer document. Well, the reason was is that it was 12% effective after seven days. Right. But then it was 95% effective after 14. Exactly. Yeah. It was just taking that one line out of that study and using that to jump off on to prove a point about how vaccines don't work when they do. Yeah. Exactly. And so in, in this particular case, John, Unfortunately, you were exposed while you were waiting for your immune system to give you that high level of antibodies. And the fact that you got the Novavax is awesome because like the response from that is really cool. And so definitely you want to go and get that second shot. Um, But please don't think that it came from the vaccine itself. It did not. And when people talk about reaction to vaccine, Jason, really important to uh, parse apart what could have just happened uh, randomly, right? Like when somebody says, I had X, Y, and Z happen to me, you know, right after getting a, a COVID-19 vaccine, there's no way to prove that without the vaccine, X, Y, and Z would have help, happened anyway. Well, that's true. Uh, but honestly, just take a blood test. And this is the one thing right. that I keep telling people who constantly like, oh, the vaccine caused this, the vaccine caused this, the vaccine caused this. Well, in order for you to know that it's this, you take a blood test. Right. But when you take that blood test, you actually take another vial and then you do an antibody test to find out whether or not there's actually any sign of antibodies as a result of the vaccination. And then you can actually do another test from um, microsensitivity to find out whether or not this could possibly be due to the effects of a vaccine. Because we already know that there are these chemicals in your blood called cytokines, and we know which ones happen as a result of a vaccine. So the fact of the matter is, is it's very easy to be able to determine whether or not there's a link. It's just that... Right it's very hard for people to understand that it takes time for that to happen, sometimes up to two years. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And I was pondering something outwardly on Twitter the other day after going shopping. I was popping in for a baguette. This ever happened to you? Just popping into the grocery store to grab a loaf of bread. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I need some grapes. I got to get some of those. I got to get some of that. I need some eggs. I got to get some milk. What what, what do I got to get? And then I get up to the cashier and I'm like, oh, I don't have my reusable shopping bags with me. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go paper. Yeah, give me, give me the paper bag because, of course, you can't get the plastic bags anymore, which is fine. Get home, unpack my groceries, folding up my paper bag because I'm going to reuse it. I want to, you know, try and get a couple of uses out of this if I can. And on the bottom of the bag, it says made in Mexico. And I thought, hold on a second. So we don't have the recyclable plastic bags because... We want to be more green and a paper bag in a pinch is better than buying another reusable bag that's probably some form of plastic because I've got 50 of those at home because I've made this mistake before. And so I'm doing this math in my head. Has this ever happened to you? It's what, 
maybe I'm weird, but I put it out on Twitter. I'm like, really? We're we're in BC where forestry is one of the top three industries in this province, pulp and paper. And we're buying bags from Mexico. How is that green? Are they going on a ship? Are they going on a train? Are they going in a truck? Are they going in an air? Like, I get that it would be cheaper, but I thought we weren't going for cheaper. I thought we were going for environmental. Anyways, the conversation sprouted beyond that on Twitter. And I thought, you know what? Let's look a little deeper. And Eric Chapman, who's producing this program right now, said, I Googled it and I found Canada Brown. So this is a company that is is going to be able to answer the question, paper or plastic? And when it's paper, why? And and does it matter where it where it comes from? Nicole Mera is the director of marketing at Canada Brown and joins me on the line. Nicole, hello. Hi, Jody. How are you? Good, thank you. It's great to speak with you about this because people ponder that question. It's almost like a chicken or egg question. Paper or plastic? Paper, definitely, by virtue of its properties, which are eco-friendly and it's uh, recyclable, can be reused also, just like a reusable bag. Plastic yep. is something that is going to last beyond you or me. Uh, for, for more reason than one, uh, waste management uh, cannot handle the plastic recycling. And paper, on the other hand, is a, it's a more efficient stream, just from newspapers to regular paper bags can be recycled better compared to plastic. That makes all kinds of sense. Do we not have a, a robust paper and, and particularly brown paper bag um, industry in Canada? We do. In fact, Canadian pulp is used across the world to manufacture all kinds of paper. But uh, the, the spike in demand during COVID, the, the takeout restaurants and shopping, everything uh, led brands to move to paper as an eco-friendly choice. Uh, now it becomes a mandate and then forces more companies to use paper. Uh, obviously, there's limited resources of factories and manufacturing capabilities, which has spilled overseas. Right. Okay, so this makes sense. This is why we wanted to have you on here, Nicole, is I want to understand why my brown paper bag says made in Mexico on the bottom of it when I'm sitting in Vancouver, you know, and, <laughs> and basically surrounded by the forestry industry and pulp and paper. Uh, but this makes right. sense to me because it's not just about the brown paper bag in my grocery store. This is about the pulp and, and, and paper products uh, that are, are, are being exponentially in, uh, put in greater demand because of this shift away from plastics. Correct. I mean, this industry was not uh, created with such kind of uh, velocity experience or the ability to handle these kind of orders. Uh, now, you have to understand the merchant's perspective also. They're trying to keep their cost of packaging as close to plastic bags as possible. So their fair choice is to get a 15 cent bag from overseas versus a 25 cent made in Canada bag just by virtue of cost of labor, cost of production, so on and so forth. So and that makes it great. Everywhere. Right. And that makes a great deal of sense because it's really not about the carbon footprint at this point. It is about anything but plastic. Because, like you said, plastic's going to outlast you or me. Correct. That's right. And uh, paper, on the other hand, uh, can be reused. Uh, like, for example, you bring paper from the grocery store to your own house. Doesn't mean that you have to immediately put it into recycling. You can give it another one or two attempts unless it becomes soggy. Right. And that's wh- that's how I actually learned that my paper bag was from Mexico because I didn't put it in a ball and <laughs> chuck it in my recycling. I folded it up because I'm like, you know what, I'll use it when I go to the picnic. Because when that's I, you know, when I walk down to the beach or I go to what I can, I can use it for my lunch. 
even though it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's very fashionable right now. Uh, Nicole, <laughs> Nicole Mare is the uh, director of marketing at Canada Brown and Canada Brown is all about packaging, right? Give us an idea of what CanadaBrown.com, uh, how, how did you come to be and, uh, and what are you all about? So we do all kinds of eco-friendly packaging and we help brands move from single-use plastic to an eco-friendly alternative that is either recyclable or compostable or biodegradable. And uh, it, it includes a lot of uh, paper bags, takeout containers, cups, cutlery, reusable bags. And uh, we, we, we basically, it has been our mission since 2018 to help brands move to an eco-friendly alternative without uh, denting the uh, budget so much. Right, without making it uh, untenable with the, as you mentioned, the restaurant industry, my significant other is in the restaurant industry and I watched him, you know, have to navigate uh, purchasing those takeout containers and, and, and swapping up how deliveries go, basically. And, and, and in doing so, the cost associated with that is not insignificant. Um, and then when it comes to the difference between a recyclable container versus a, a biodegradable container comes into play, how, how important should it be that we look for the latter? Or is it? Is, it, is recyclable good enough? Or is, is biodegradable the core, the core uh, uh, mission here? Biodegradable should be the core mission because if you add one more step of waste management, it, it only spills or uh, uh, lets out more waste than we should uh, be uh, reusing or let's say composting. Uh, as far as recycle versus compostable handling is concerned, the current waste management uh, systems across North America for that matter are not equipped to particularly identify if it's a compostable material or recyclable even if it's printed on the container so right. brands might actually spend more on compostable pla materials but it actually ends up in the landfill because recycling plants are not able to handle that they don't have the machinery or laborious methods to understand each container between uh, compostable or recyclable so recyclable as of today is better but compostable or biodegradable is what we should aim for Okay, so paper over plastic. What about the bags, the, re the, the biodegradable bags that are made of uh, a derivative of cornstarch? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. As long as it reaches an industrial compost and uh, it, it goes in the ground, they, they, they have methods to make biofuel out of it or um, uh, uh, basically compost it and uh, make uh, uh, soil out of it. Right. So it's often a controversial uh, subject matter when you expand beyond the simplicity of paper or plastic when it comes to the vehicle of, of buying your groceries or your takeout containers and what have you. There are places and spaces where plastics are necessary. Obviously, the hospital environment comes to mind. So this conversation right. is more about, about uh, helping with the sustainability uh, and, the, and the awareness of environment, environmental impacts of, of the simple plastic container and the simple plastic bag, right? That's correct. That's correct. In fact, I would this like to add that uh, the, the future should have more reusable product and reduce the need for manufacturing again and again. So that 50 reusable bags that you have at home, put them to good use and yes. uh, hopefully stop buying new uh, paper bags at all. That, that's and how everybody should learn. I have far too many reusable bags I, and th <laughs> thus my reasoning for going with the, the paper bag and then putting my mind to the idea of, you know, we can, we can go overboard with, with in the name of 
uh, carbon footprint or in the name of going green, we're actually, you know, feeding the beast by having a bunch of reusable plastic bags. <laughs> it's not helpful. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Nicole, for uh, for taking some time out My to pleasure, educate Jody. us today. I appreciate it. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We were talking about paper or plastic when you go grocery shopping and how many reusable bags you might have. My significant other is currently texting me. Uh, about how I am throwing him under the bus on too many reusable bags. And then I put the bags in the back of my car, the reusable grocery bags in the back of my car. And then he takes my car to work because it's a it's a electric hybrid. So we're avoiding the, the cost of gas. And then I get in his car, go to the grocery store, no bags. I'm like, Ugh! okay, here we go. So my question to you, you feeling my pain? Paper or plastic, are you, are you getting used to needing to take bags with you as we all must, uh, to try and help our environment. We start with Barbara and Cloverdale. Welcome to the show, Barbara. I think you and I are like-minded, Jody. Um, yes. Same thing. Uh, well, one, um, re- reusable before paper, before plastic. Um, right. That said, my car, as I was telling your producer, like I have um, bags in my trunk, in my back seat, in my handbag, um, everywhere. And then, of course, if we take the wrong vehicle, in air quotes, there's no bags in the husband's right. car, which <laughs> right. makes me crazy. Um, Same. But, and, I, and I live in Surrey, so I have to pay for paper bags, too, right? Yeah. No yeah. plastic, and I have to pay for paper. And I'd like a good um, tote. Like, if you're a superstore shopper or something like that, for groceries, I prefer a tote like the big plastic bins? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you on that one. I also enjoy, I remember the Ikea bag was sort of iconic, that big blue bag from Ikea, and the Superstore and the No Frills have kind of followed along there. You got the the hashtag holler, or you got the slam bag, which is apparently, it is a hashtag slam. It's apparently shop like a mother, which I thought was pretty funny because it's like, do mothers only shop? Um, But I will take them because you can load up pretty much a a carry bag bin of if you're doing a a heavy lap let's call it when you go in for one thing and you come out with 30 pounds of groceries uh i'm feeling mm. like you feel me there barbara i feel like you and i are are, are Ab- going through this absolutely absolutely we just want we just need one hauler i gotta say brian is very good at bringing home the haulers it's just that he takes them in my car thank you for the phone call Wait. uh barbara i appreciate you thank you for listening let's go to shannon in surrey welcome to the show shannon what are your thoughts on paper or plastic and reusable bags uh, my thoughts, of course, would be to go with the most environmentally friendly option, but I really wanted to indicate that the main reason why all the Vancouver uh, stores are using these bags from Mexico or USA or or China even is that the, the Vancouver bylaw states that the bags need to be made of 40% recycled material or 40% post-consumer product, and there's no Canadian manufacturer of that. We make paper really? bags, but we do not make paper bags with 40% or higher recycled or post-consumer product. That's a problem. So why would that be mandated, knowing that statistic to be true? I have no idea. I contacted the city many times, and they did not have a good answer for it. I don't think they knew it. Um, Now, I I assume some of the Canadian manufacturers are going to start getting on board with this, but uh, so far they aren't. Or maybe a slight pivot to the bylaw associated with that? Yes. Can you restate you what, so. what it says? Yeah, I mean, uh, we can try. Bags have to be, sorry, 
Yeah, the bed is supposed to be made with 40% recycled content or 40% post-consumer product, one or the other. And none make it And there's like that. none made in Canada that satisfy that requirement. So us re- retailers had to make a choice. Are we going to go with locally made bags or are we going to go with ones that are recycled and, you know, made of those recycled material? Obviously, uh, it's a lot cheaper. You can get cheaper bags. There's cheaper right. paper bags around. But these bags cost retailers a lot more than the plastic did and more than the 17 cents that we're required to charge. So, you know, this this has been uh, difficult for businesses. But if, if uh, we could get on board in Canada and start making the type of bags that will be most environmentally friendly, that's going to be best for everybody. That is good conversation to have with the uh, maybe a couple of Vancouver City Councillors can chime in on on why that I've is. Been, the I've, case. Been ho- I've been hoping you would, you guys would do that. Thanks. Well, here you're doing it now on the radio because let me tell you what I know for sure. City Hall listens to CKNW in Vancouver for sure. So uh, appreciate you and your your knowledge on this. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Cheers. That's Shannon in Surrey. Interesting. I mean, I I I, I understand the need to purchase the the lowest cost option for businesses and particularly uh in the restaurant industry where your your margin for for profit is razor thin uh but when i think about these brown paper bags coming from mexico when we live in a place where and i googled the where uh, forestry lies in the in in british columbia in, ter- in terms of industry and it's in the top 3 I mean, it just it felt counterintuitive at the very least. I want to bring in Phil, our technical producer, because as we were going into the segment, Phil, when we were in the commercial break, Phil was telling me about his reusable bag stash. Phil, is your mic hot? It is always hot. Okay. Always ready to go. Tell, tell me your story. You and your fiance have a little <laughs> bit of a similar issue that um, uh, myself and Brian have. Yeah, I was saying the, the caller earlier uh, basically talked about her husband and she's like taking taking the car with him and you know you're going to the grocery store and you're expecting to have all the reusable bags in there because we all have a ton of them and then all of a sudden you get there and you're like where are the reusable bags oh honey i forgot them mm. and meanwhile my fiance her vehicle is loaded with reusable bags mine none and so every time we take my car i was saying yeah i forgot the reusable bags Oops. You know what's I'm while I'm speaking with you right now on this subject, Brian is tuned into the program and he is sending me photos of where the reusable bags are tucked in down the side of the hatchback of his vehicle. <laughs> this is everybody needs to get on the same page when it comes to their reusable bags and where they're stashed so that we can all move away uh, from the the juggle that is carrying your groceries out of a shop when you go in for one item and you come out with 20 things. And I think that you can you can go a long way before when when are you getting married? You keep saying fiance. When are you getting married? Uh, it's still TBD. We'll see what happens. Still perhaps TBD. some gift bags for, for perhaps some reusable shopping bags should be. Your, yeah, your for, takeaway for gift my car specifically. And maybe Brian can give me <laughs> Brian. I'll take some pointers as a wedding gift as well to not forget the uh, reusable bags. You know what? Actually, I'm going to make a point of it. I'm going to go home after the show. I'm going to put them in my car. Okay, so everybody Remind do that, me. and all marriages and relationships of all sorts will be much, much 
happier. We're continuing a theme that we've sort of been touching on regularly here on the program, and certainly we've been talking about it this week. Uh, we had Sonia first to know the BC Green Party leader on. Uh, initially, I invited her to come on because she had tweeted about the fact that there is a three-week wait for an appointment at a walk-in clinic. <laughs> A three-week wait for a walk-in clinic. I remember a time when walk-in clinics were where you go when there was a three-week wait to get into your doctor. But now so many people don't have a doctor that the walk-in clinic is their doctor and there is the wait. So this domino effect that is significantly impacting a million British Columbians, that's what we're talking about. So many people uh, without primary care in this province. It is a big issue. And a champion who's trying to change that is our global medical expert contributor, Dr. Burinder Narang, and he is on the line with me right now. Hello there. Good morning, Jody. How are you? I'm doing well, and I want to bend your ear on this because I follow you on social, social media. You're a great follow there, and, and I know how passionate you are about supporting the community of doctors in British Columbia who are really being let down by our system that just is not built for the capacity and the strain that is currently before it, and particularly in places like Metro Vancouver, where the affordability piece is massive. And in speaking with with uh, Ms. Firstenau, um about the overhead piece of the puzzle for doctors, many people don't understand that your family doctor has to pay the lease and the insurance and the staff and the everything. It's not like he gets a place to go to practice. It, it's very costly to be a physician, and in an affordability crisis and crunch like we have, here in Metro Vancouver, it's exponentially more difficult for doctors to continue, right? Oh, absolutely. I think if, even in the lower mainland, you're going to find that there's a huge disparity in what are the overhead costs. And a lot of uh, the overhead costs are obviously due to, um, you know, the inflation and in real estate market as it's happening. But then there's also things about individual clinics having to order their own supplies. Like, why is there not a system where a community can order things on batch together and have a way that it can be distributed equitably? So uh, mm. there's many there's many factors to it that increase costs and costs get pushed down to the individual clinic level. Your electronic records, every clinic has to negotiate their own rate with a vendor who is, many of them are pariahs. And so all of this is not only a cost, but what's the cost of the emotional cost of having to do that, having to negotiate all on your own time um, to make sure that you can retain um, whether they're employees or um, if you're the business owner, colleagues to stay and work with you. <laughs> so electronic records, when you're talking, you mean like the, the system that you use in order to, to keep record yeah. of your patients? You have to, you have to negotiate well, it's the most that? important part. Yeah, it's the most important part of the record. If you didn't write something down, it didn't happen from a medical legal perspective. And and so you have to document, you have to document effectively. Um, the College of Physicians and Surgeons have, um, you know, um, standards on documentation and, um, and record keeping and, you know, things that are sometimes difficult to maintain at a level that uh, should be done, but it, it, it's reasonable to pay, protect patients. But when you, yeah, yeah when systems are... Um, are, are being designed, it is the cost of um, purchasing that system um, is um, at the clinic level. And when you look at the cost of modernization, which is like, you know, we're still operating on faxes, I'm still having to send requests um, by fax sometimes to other parties to get information 
Um, so when we're looking at online booking, uh, video calling, um, you know, secure messaging between patients and, and physicians um, to actually be a bit more efficient in the 21st century, the cost of that is unaffordable. I know of a doctor personally who is opening a new clinic in Burnaby, which is, um, you know, um, I, I'm dumbfounded at the, at, as someone who's willing to take on that risk right now, but all the power to them. But they're using an inferior electronic system because the one that would actually be better for patient care is not affordable. Wow. Why is that not standardized by the province or even by the federal government or a combination of the two? Like, it seems like in 2022, we should not be relying on faxes. Let's start there. I mean, how many times have I heard, oh, yeah, have your doctor just fax that over to the pharmacy? And it's like, fax, really? Fax. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the faxes are automated. So, you know, um, um, a lot of our patients, we will try to help them out, even with automatic prescription refills from the pharmacy, which will come by fax. And if I don't get it to the same day, and then the next day, another automatic fax will come. And then I'll have two for the same thing to do my inbox. And you can see how when you have um, hundreds to thousands of patients, that can um, the administrative burden of just trying to keep up can rise exponentially. No kidding. So let's talk about yeah. the the need for um, there to be greater support uh, for physicians when we're when we're talking about the level of stress, the PTSD that must be being felt uh, after the the bulk of this global pandemic, and certainly where we are now, not out of it by any stretch of the imagination, and the abuses that that physicians are taking now, like never seen before. We saw that we we saw a point where. doctors and nurses and frontline healthcare workers were being told not to wear their scrubs in public because it made them a target. Well, absolutely. And I think it's easy to focus on um, those kind of obvious threats of physical and um, um, other, you know, forms of harm. But the process of engagement for people like myself, where I am privileged to have a leadership position within a community and um, sit at tables where we're trying to um, work for the betterment of our community, but I also cannot tell you what happens at these tables because if I do, I'm at risk of losing funding for my community. Or if I tell you what's happening in other areas of our health authority, what's ha- going to happen? So I think part of that is there is a culture of fear, um, retribution mm-hmm. um, that exists um, in all these tables, and it, and it is killing primary care even more. So like if we're already dying, that will be the final dagger. So pardon my novice on this, but I'm going to ask this question because when dealing with government, oftentimes there is an enormous amount of bureaucracy, like an an absolute ridiculous level of bureaucracy and and oftentimes so much managing up that there's really no... there's really no empathy for the actual structure that needs help at at the boots on the ground level. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you you look at it. So, I mean, what are most physicians are independent contractors that don't have any control on the rates that they set. So inherently you're tied to a system of bureaucracy, which is fine. I think, um, you know, I'm all for um, public medicine. I think that that's what every Canadian deserves, but you need to have capital investment to make sure it is done well. And when you look at the level of kind of micromanagement that happens at people that don't understand your reality on the ground, that is what contributes to burnout. When people expect you to leave your clinic in the middle of the day um, to show up at a meeting um, and, you know, you don't really have a choice. And so they do it at the detriment of patient care. So Mm. the, the irony of it is, you know, you're getting 
Um, you, you're getting called into meetings where you're probably going to be bullied at the detriment of patient care when you're trying to advocate for patient care. That sounds incredibly frustrating. What If you had the yeah. conch, if you, if you had the ability to make one change today, what would it be? Oof, one change. I, one change, I think right now, the most urgent thing that's needed is stabilization for um, to stop the bleeding. Um, so stabilization, I mean, in the sense of, you know, there needs to be capital investment that, that will keep clinics from closing. And it needs to be done in a systematic way that can um, um, identify clinics' needs, what they need to stay. And I think a lot of that, the onus is on us physicians to actually look at our own finances and the clinic owner specifically, and also find out what do we actually need, knowing that that's, that's the most urgent thing um, to stop the clinics from closing, to stop detaching patients. But then overall, we look at, we also need to look at what is the culture of the system um, and culture of primary care, and how do we fix that? Because if we don't fix that, you, it's just a band-aid solution. You can't recruit yeah. people effectively into a system that does not value the care that you give. What are family doctors good at? Complexity and relationships. And if we're not uh, enabled to do that, then we're going to have crappy medicine across the board. Yeah, and crappy medicine across the board leaves the patient waiting too long to get what could possibly be preventative, right? Three weeks <laughs> for a walk-in appointment. I mean, you might Absolutely. need emergency by the time, yeah. you know. Well, Your you look strep at the downstream throat goes effect. undiagnosed. Yeah, yeah. Your downstream effect is you look at the amount of stuff that's happening in the emergency. I have a colleague that works at one of the local emergency departments, and their volumes are significantly higher. One of the local ones, 600 visits almost within 24 hours. That Whoa. They are not staffed to handle that. Whoa. We're with Dr. Barinder Narang. You know his face from uh, watching Global BC as the global medical expert contributor. Also a huge advocate on uh, the founding board of thisisourshot.ca. We were talking earlier about the NACI uh, recommendations that came out today, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, uh, the, the federal body that that gives their advice on immunization. Uh, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you just about the number of people who have yet to have their third dose of COVID-19 vaccine. What do you say to those people that have just had two doses and feel fully immunized? Oh, I, I think that the third dose is better than the second dose. I mean, I know you've had plenty of discussions with other people. We've seen that two doses is not very effective at stopping you from getting it or transmitting it. Third dose also has diminishing returns, but definitely that period after any booster, within those two to three months, you have a good level of neutralizing antibodies, which will protect you from getting it. We're still learning about, um, you know, people who are vaccinated, what is the risk of getting things like long COVID or long-term sequelae of COVID? And we do need to all be cognizant of that. So we we all, if we have an opportunity to do what we can to protect ourselves, getting a booster is very low risk with potentially lots of benefit. So I would encourage people that haven't gotten it to please get it. There you go. You can find out more about where and how by going to the government website. It's an easy Google, Vaccinate BC. Just go there, it pops up, a number to call or a place to just plug in your information. Dr. Narang, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks as always for doing this. No worries. Take care. Bye-bye. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And we thought for this segment, we would deviate from the news cycle and talk about a real success story and introduce you to someone. If you aren't a, uh, a golf enthusiast that you don't follow along with the the level of of incredible golfers that come from our corner of the world. We want to introduce you to one that's making headlines and, and somebody that you can uh, follow along with. 
Her name is Shelly Stouffer. Uh, from here, uh, underachiever is our Shelly. Holy moly. Uh, UBC grad with a, a bachelor in human kinetics. Uh, she is a professional trainer. She is a professional golfer. She is now uh, one to beat. She is somewhat of uh, the Tiger Woods of, of seniors golf. She's a bit of a phenom getting all kinds of attention. And she's from here. And Shelly Stouffer joins me on the line. Hello there. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to talk to you and, and introduce you to some of our listeners who may not know um, your story. I think it, first and foremost, it's so funny to call you a senior. You're two years younger than me. I do not call <laughs> myself a senior. I um, know, 50. It's it, the age. Yeah. It's it's really quite, it's fascinating. Um, so give us a little bit of a Coles Notes ver version on the Shelley Stouffer story to hear, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, Coles Notes. Uh, well, okay. So I started out, um, I was an amateur way back in the well when I was in high school and then early early years until I got married and then um I think right after I got married in 20 or no 1997 I turned pro maybe in 1998 I think and then yeah. I played professional for a while played in a bunch of a few I tried to get on the LPJ and wasn't quite successful at that but I did play in about um six LPJ majors um some Canadian ones that were the Canadian Opens, and then I did play in the 2001 U.S. Open, U.S. Women's Open. And then um, then I had kids um, in 05 and 07, and then I ended up getting my amateur status back in 2011. So then since then I've been playing, and it was like when I was 40 I got my amateur status back, and then so I played a little bit here and there. Um, but then when I turned 50, I was waiting to turn 50 and then COVID hit and I'm like, oh. uh, all this stuff basically got canceled. And I was like, it was going to be the year, Shelly. <laughs> yeah. But then, but then uh, we took a, took a bit of a break, only played in one event, which was the BC Women's Senior. And I won that. And then, and then the following year, again, COVID is still kind of going strong. And then played in the BCs again. And then I actually went to Canadians because they had that that year. And then I won that. And then. After and then I got an exemption to the U.S. Women's Senior Amateur, which was like the week after the Canadian. So I'm like, oh my yeah. god! So I had to scramble and make plans for that, and it was crazy because you had to get the COVID testing. I'm like, I don't think I can go. I don't. I can't get a COVID test to leave. And anyway, so I was able to get it done, and then I came um, third place down there in the Amazing. U.S. Uh, yeah. So then I got a couple exemptions into the following two years. So I'm going to Alaska coming up at the end of uh, July here. And then also from winning the Canadian Senior Am, I got an exemption into the U.S. Uh, Women's Senior Open, which is going to be played in Ohio uh, this year at the end of, just before the Canadian Amateur, uh, near the end of August, August there, so... This is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, Shelly, is um, just just so that people here could could keep their eyes peeled because you are making waves in this incredibly competitive piece of the golf puzzle, uh, internationally so, and your ranking and what have you. And I love the fact that your story is that of somebody who has had your life take every path you what you just explained there is just it's just fantastic it's like I did this until I got married and then I did that and then I had kids and then a pandemic hit and then and yeah. you're still managing to do the thing in such a way what gives you that I don't know what the word is other than chutzpah what gives you that that drive oh well I just I love to compete and um I love golf so put the two together and there you have it but 
I can't do it without like my mom has been helping with the kids and my sister and and Fairwinds actually sponsored me this year so that helps because it's really expensive to do this all on your own and also I have my own business now so that allows me to be able to do it if I had a full-time job there's no way I could do all this either so um right. yeah it's just been it's Is been your business great done? I wouldn't change it I mean my kids right. sometimes like mom when are you going to be home <laughs> but <laughs> I feel you on that one. But the Family yeah. Affair and Fairwinds, that's your home course, right? Your home club? That is, yeah. 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 So shout out to that, um, you know, getting behind the talent to be able yeah, to afford was, to do the thing. it's amazing. It's really great. Yeah. And what's your business? What's, what's, your, what's the name uh, of your business? It's called Dynamic Kinesiology. So, and, um, so I do, I, I train people, but I also rehab people from injuries from like if they got injured in a car accident or what have you and or, you know, um, or I do golf assessments for people if they want to. I do TPI, like uh, Titleist Performance Institute golf assessments. And, um, I've done that. Yeah, I've, so I people, found out that I'm really bad at it. I found out through oh, Titleist that I'm, yeah, I'm really, but I I'm sure you I love, can get lots of help somewhere. <laughs> Maybe from a Shelly Stouffer, perhaps. Yeah, specializing in <laughs> golf-specific exercises and is Titleist Performance Institute certified to level two fitness. Uh, you mentioned yeah. ICBC as well. So dynamic kinesiology is uh, yeah. Shelly's business, but we're going to root you on. And uh, just I, I just wanted to take a breath and take a moment. I met... Uh, someone associated with you who was speaking your praises, and I went, "Hey, that's that's a story for the radio." And I'm really glad that you were available today to to sort of give people that breath of fresh air to know that it's it's good to keep doing what you love to do, and particularly on the heels of of what has been such an incredibly difficult last couple of years, and golf being such a safe sport, one of the few things that we saw, you know, allowed to continue. Uh, during yeah. this pandemic in terms of just a recreational way to get outside and and, and socialize somewhat. Um, so important in that as well, even if you're not great at it like me. Yeah, no, it's definitely awesome. When I heard that people, when the golf courses were closed for some point, I'm like, why? Because <laughs> yeah. you don't have to touch the flags because there was a new rule put in where the flags would stay in the hole. And, and it was yeah. outside. You could social distance while you played. But anyway. It's all good. I, and it was great that it came back first and everything. I love, I love it. And it's great to be outside and socializing. Yeah. We're going to follow along, Shelly Stouffer. Best to you in your upcoming competitions, uh, Alaska, Ohio, and beyond. Go make us proud. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah, it's been great.